Chapter 6 The Megapolitics of the Information Age The Triumph of Efficiency Over Power It is computerized information, not manpower or mass production, that increasingly drives the U.S. economy and that will win wars in a world wired for 500 TV channels. The computerized information exists in cyberspace, the new dimension created by endless reproduction of computer networks, satellites, modems, databases, and the public Internet. Neil Monroe On December 30, 1936, auto workers, angling for higher pay, forcibly seized two of General Motors' main plants at Flint, Michigan. They idled machines, turned off the assembly lines, and made themselves at home. Workers who had been employed to operate the factories sat down in an industrial confrontation that was to last for many weeks. It was a drama punctuated by violent riots and the fluctuating allegiances of the police, the Michigan militia, and political figures at all levels of government. Seeing little progress in forcing their demands, the Union struck again on February 1, 1937. Union activists forcibly took over GM's Chevrolet factory in Flint. By occupying and closing General Motors' key factories, the workers effectively paralyzed the company's productive capacity. In the ten days following the seizure of the third plant, GM produced only 153 automobiles in the United States. We revisit this newsflash from 60 years ago to place the revolution in megapolitical conditions now underway into clearer perspective. The GM sit-down strike happened within the lifetimes of some listeners of this book. Yet we believe that sit-down strikes will prove as anachronistic in the information age as slaves slogging across the desert with giant stones in tow to erect funeral pyramids for the pharaohs. While labor unions and their tactics of intimidation became so familiar in the industrial period as to be an unquestioned part of the social landscape, they depended upon special megapolitical conditions that are rapidly fading away. There will be no Chevrolets and no UAW to strike on the information superhighway. The fortunes of governments will follow those of their counterparts, the unions, into decline. Institutionalized coercion of the kind that played a crucial role in 20th century society will no longer be possible. Technology is precipitating a profound change in the logic of extortion and protection. There be no property, no dominion, no mine and thine distinct, but only that to be every man's that he can get, and for so long as he can keep it. Thomas Hobbes Extortion and Protection Throughout history, violence has been a dagger pointed at the heart of the economy. As Thomas Schelling shrewdly put it, the power to hurt, to destroy things that somebody treasures, to inflict pain and grief, is a kind of bargaining power, not easy to use, but used often. In the underworld, it is the basis for blackmail, extortion, and kidnapping. In the commercial world, for boycotts, strikes, and lockouts, it is often the basis for discipline, civilian and military, and gods use it to exact discipline. A government's capacity to tax ultimately depends upon the same vulnerabilities as do private shakedowns and extortion. Although we tend not to perceive it in these terms, the proportion of assets that are controlled and spent coercively through crime and government provides a rough measure of the megapolitical balance between extortion and protection. If technology made the protection of assets difficult, crime would tend to be widespread, and so would union activity. Under such circumstances, protection by government would therefore command a premium. Taxes would be high. Where taxes are lower and wage rates in the workplace are determined by market forces rather than through political intervention or coercion, technology has tipped the balance toward protection. The technological imbalance between extortion and protection reached an extreme at the end of the third quarter of the 20th century. In some advanced Western societies, more than a majority of resources were commandeered by governments. The incomes of a large fraction of the population were either set by fiat or determined under the influence of coercion, such as by strikes and threats of violence in other forms. 
The welfare state and the trade union were both artifacts of technology, sharing the spoils of the triumph of power over efficiency in the 20th century. They could not have existed if not for the technologies, military and civilian, that raised the returns to violence during the Industrial Age. The capacity to create assets has always entailed some vulnerability to extortion. The greater the assets created or possessed, the higher the price to be paid, in one way or another. Either you paid off everyone who gained the leverage to employ violence for extortion, or you paid for military power capable of defeating any shakedown attempt by brute force. Violence shall no more be heard in thy land, wasting nor destruction within thy borders. Isaiah 60, 18 The Mathematics of Protection Now the dagger of violence could soon be blunted. Information technology promises to alter dramatically the balance between protection and extortion, making protection of assets in many cases much easier and extortion more difficult. The technology of the information age makes it possible to create assets that are outside the reach of many forms of coercion. This new asymmetry between protection and extortion rests upon a fundamental truth of mathematics. It is easier to multiply than to divide. As basic as this truth is, however, its far-reaching consequences were disguised prior to the advent of microprocessors. High-speed computers have facilitated many billions of times more computations in the past decade than were undertaken in all the previous history of the world. This leap in computation has allowed us, for the first time, to fathom some of the universal characteristics of complexity. What the computers show is that complex systems can be built and understood only from the bottom up. Multiplying prime numbers is simple, but disaggregating complexity by trying to decompose the product of large prime numbers is all but impossible. Kevin Kelly, editor of Wired, puts it this way. To multiply several prime numbers into a large product is easy. Any elementary school kid can do it but the world's supercomputers choke while trying to unravel a product into its simple primes. The Logic of Complex Systems The cyber economy will inevitably be shaped by this profound mathematical truth. It already has an obvious expression in powerful encryption algorithms. As we explore later in this chapter, these algorithms will allow the creation of a new, protected realm of cyber commerce in which the leverage of violence will be greatly reduced. The balance between extortion and protection will tip dramatically in the direction of protection. This will facilitate the emergence of an economy that depends more upon spontaneous adaptive mechanisms and less upon conscious decision-making and resource allocation through bureaucracy. The new system in which protection will be at the forefront will be very different from that which arose from the predominance of compulsion in the industrial period. Command and control systems are primitive. We wrote in The Great Reckoning that the computer is enabling us to see the formerly invisible complexity inherent in a whole range of systems— See Chapter 8 of The Great Reckoning, Linear Expectations in a Nonlinear World, How the Telescope Led Us to Compute, How the Computer Can Help Us to See. Not only does advanced computational capability enable us to better understand the dynamics of complex systems, it also enables us to harness those complexities in productive ways. In a sense, this is not even a choice, but an inevitability if the economy is to advance beyond the inflexible central control stage of development. Such a system, which depends upon linear relationships, is fundamentally primitive. Government appropriation inevitably dragoons resources from high-value complex uses to low-value primitive uses. It is a process that is limited by the same mathematical asymmetry that prevents the unraveling of the product of large prime numbers. Dividing the spoils can never be anything but primitive. Everything gets more complex. Everywhere you look in the universe, you see systems attaining greater complexity as they evolve. This is true in astrophysics. It is true in a puddle. Leave rainwater alone in a low spot and it will grow more complex. 
Advanced systems of every variety are complex adaptive systems without an authority in charge. Every complex system in nature, of which the market economy is the most evident social manifestation, depends upon dispersed capabilities. Systems that work most effectively under the widest range of conditions depend for their resilience upon spontaneous order that accommodates novel possibilities. Life itself is such a complex system. Billions of potential combinations of genes produce a single human individual. Sorting among them would confound any bureaucracy. Twenty-five years ago, that could only have been an intuition. Today, it is demonstrable. The closer computers bring us to understanding the mathematics of artificial life, the better we understand the mathematics of real life, which are those of biological complexity. These secrets of complexity, harnessed through information technology, are allowing economies to be reconfigured into more complex forms. The Internet and the World Wide Web have already taken on characteristics of an organic system, as Kevin Kelly suggests in Out of Control, The New Biology of Machines, Social Systems, and the Economic World. In his words, nature is an idea factory, vital, Post-industrial paradigms are hidden in every jungly anthill. The wholesale transfer of biologic into machines should fill us with awe. When the union of the born and the made is complete, our fabrications will learn, adapt, heal themselves, and evolve. This is a power we have hardly dreamt of yet. Indeed, the consequences of the wholesale transfer of biologic into machines are bound to be far-reaching. There has always been a strong tendency for social systems to mimic the characteristics of prevailing technology. This is something that Marx got right. Gigantic factories coincided with the age of big government. Microprocessing is miniaturizing institutions. If our analysis is correct, the technology of the information age will ultimately create an economy better suited to exploit the advantages of complexity. Yet, the megapolitical dimensions of such a change are so little understood that even most of those who have recognized its mathematical importance have done so in an anachronistic way. It is simply difficult to grasp and internalize fully the likelihood that technological change in the next few years will antiquate most of the political forms and concepts of the modern world. For example, the late physicist Heinz Pagels wrote in his far-seeing book, The Dreams of Reason, I am convinced that the nations and people who master the new science of complexity will become the economic, cultural, and political superpowers of the next century. It is an impressive forecast. But we believe it is bound to be wrong, not because it is misperceived, but precisely because it will prove more right than Dr. Pagels dared to express. Societies that reconfigure themselves to become more complex, adaptive systems will indeed prosper. But when they do, they are unlikely to be nations, much less political superpowers. The more likely immediate beneficiaries of increased complexity of social systems will be the sovereign individuals of the new millennium. As Pagos's forecast stands, it is the equivalent to a shaman of a hunting band of five hundred generations ago telling his men as they crouched around the campfire, I am convinced that the first hunting band to master the new science of irrigated planting will have more free time for storytelling than even those guys over at the lake who catch the big fish. As right as he was about the importance of complexity, Pagels overlooked the most basic fact of all. When the logic of violence changes, society changes. The Logic of Violence To see how and why, it is necessary to focus on several facets of megapolitics that are seldom brought to your attention. These are issues that were explored by historian Frederick C. Lane, whose work on violence and the economic meaning of war is discussed elsewhere in this volume. When Lane wrote in the middle of this century, the information society was nowhere in sight. Under the circumstances, he may well have supposed that the competition to employ violence in the world had reached its final stage with the appearance of the nation-state. 
There is no hint in his works that he anticipated microprocessing or believed that it was technologically feasible to create assets in cyberspace, a realm without physical existence. Lane had nothing to say about the implications of the possibility that large amounts of commerce could be made all but immune from the leverage of violence. While Lane did not foresee the technological revolutions now unfolding, his insights into the various stages of the monopolization of violence in the past were so lucid that they have obvious application to the emerging information revolution. Lane's study of the violent medieval world attracted his attention to issues that conventional economists and historians have tended to neglect. He saw that how violence is organized and controlled plays a large role in determining what uses are made of scarce resources. Lane also recognized that while production of violence is not usually considered part of economic output, the control of violence is crucial to the economy. The primary role of government is to provide protection against violence. As he put it, Every economic enterprise needs and pays for protection, protection against the destruction or armed seizure of its capital and the forceful disruption of its labor. In highly organized societies, the production of this utility, protection, is one of the functions of a special association or enterprise called government. Indeed, one of the most distinctive characteristics of governments is their attempt to create law and order by using force themselves and by controlling through various means the use of force by others. That is a point that is apparently too basic to appear in textbooks or to form a part of the civic discussion that presumably determines the course of politics. But it is also too basic to ignore if you wish to understand the unfolding information revolution protection of life and property is indeed a crucial need that has bedeviled every society that ever existed. How to fend off violent aggression is history's central dilemma. It cannot easily be solved, notwithstanding the fact that protection can be provided in more than one way. The Close of an Age as we write, the megapolitical consequences of the information age are only beginning to be felt. The economic change of recent decades has been from the primacy of manufacturers to that of information and computation, from machine power to microprocessing, from factory to workstation, from mass production to small teams, or even to persons working alone. As the scale of enterprise falls, so does the potential for sabotage and blackmail in the workplace. Smaller-scale operations are much more difficult to organize by unions. Microtechnology allows firms to be smaller, more footloose targets. Many deal in services or products with negligible natural resource content. In principle, these businesses could be conducted almost anywhere on the planet. They are not trapped at a specific location, like a mine or a port. Therefore, in the fullness of time, they will be far less susceptible to being taxed, either by unions or by politicians. An old Chinese folk wisdom holds, Of all the 36 ways to get out of trouble, the best way is leave. In the information age, that oriental wisdom will be easily applied. If operations become uncomfortable due to excessive demands in one location, it will be far easier to move. Indeed, as we explore below, it will be possible in the information age to create virtual corporations whose domicile in any jurisdiction will be entirely contingent on the spot market. An overnight increase in the degree of attempted extortion, either by governments or others, could lead to the activities and assets of the virtual corporation fleeing the jurisdiction at the speed of light. The growing integration of microtechnology into industrial processes means that even those firms that still deal in manufactured products with great economies of scale are no longer as vulnerable to the leverage of violence as they once were. An example illustrating this point is the collapse of the United Auto Workers Union's lengthy strike against Caterpillar, which was called off in the waning days of 1995, after almost two years. Unlike the assembly lines of the 1930s, today's Caterpillar plant employs far more skilled workers. Pressed by foreign competition, Caterpillar farmed out much of its low-skill work, 
closed inefficient plants, and spent almost $2 billion computerizing machine tools and installing assembly robots. Even the strike itself helped spur labor-saving efficiencies. The company now claims to need 2,000 fewer employees than when the walkout began. The megapolitics of the production process has altered more drastically than most people realize. This change is not yet clearly visible, partly because there is always a lag between a revolution in megapolitical conditions and the institutional changes it inevitably precipitates. Further, the rapid evolution of microprocessing technology means that products are now on the horizon whose megapolitical consequences can be anticipated even before they exist. They will make for a far different world. Exploitation of the Capitalists by the Workers The character of technology through most of the 20th century made the forcible seizure of a factory, or a sit-down strike, a hard tactic for owners or managers to counter. As historian Robert S. McIlvain put it, a sit-down strike made it difficult for employers to break the strike without doing the same to their own equipment. In effect, the workers physically held the owner's capital to ransom. For reasons we explore below, larger industrial companies proved easier targets for unions to exploit than smaller firms. In 1937, General Motors was perhaps the leading industrial corporation in the world. Its factories were among the largest and most costly aggregations of machinery ever assembled, employing many thousands of workers. Every hour, every day, that the GM plants were forced to sit idle cost the company a small fortune. A strike that remained unsettled for weeks, like that in the winter of 1936-37, to 37, meant rapidly ballooning losses. Defying Supply and Demand Unable to produce automobiles after the seizure of its third plant, GM soon capitulated to the union. This was hardly an economic decision based upon the supply and demand for labor. Far from it. When General Motors acceded to the union demands, there were 9 million persons unemployed in the United States, 14% of the workforce. Most of those without work would gladly have taken jobs at GM. They certainly had the skills to fill assembly line jobs, although you might not know this from most contemporary accounts. A delicate etiquette shrouded straightforward analysis of labor relations during the industrial period. One of its pretenses was the idea that factory jobs, particularly in the middle of the 20th century, were skilled work. This was untrue. Most factory jobs could have been performed by almost anyone capable of showing up on time. They required little or no training, not even the ability to read or write. As recently as the 1980s, Large fractions of the General Motors workforce were either illiterate, innumerate, or both. Until the 1990s, the typical assembly line worker at GM received only one day of orientation before taking his place on the assembly line. A job you can learn in a single day is not skilled work. Yet, in 1937, with unskilled and skilled workers alike lined up begging for jobs, GM factory workers were able to coerce their employers into a pay hike. Their success had much more to do with the dynamics of violence than with the supply and demand for labor. In March 1937, the month following the settlement of the GM confrontation, there were 170 more sit-down strikes in the United States. Most were successful. Similar episodes occurred in every industrialized country. The workers simply seized the factories and ransomed them back to the owners. It was a tactic of great simplicity, and one that in most cases was profitable and fun for those participating. One sit-down striker wrote, I'm having a great time. Something new, something different. Lots of grub and music. The GM sit-down strike of 1936-37 and the other forcible plant seizures of the time were examples of a phenomenon we described in Blood in the Streets as the exploitation of the capitalists by the workers. This was not the view that Pete Seeger set to music in his sad songs, but unless you are planning a career as a folk singer in a blue-collar neighborhood, the important thing to focus on is not the popular interpretation, but the underlying reality. 
Wherever you look in history, there is generally a layer of rationalization and make-believe that disguises the true megapolitical foundations of any systemic extortion. If you take the rationalizations at face value, you are unlikely to grasp what is really going on. Deciphering the Logic of Extortion To recognize the megapolitical implications of the current shift to the information age, you have to strip away the can't and focus on the real logic of violence in society. This is like stripping away the layers of an overripe onion. It may bring tears to your eyes, but don't look away. We first examine the logic of extortion in the workplace, then extend the analysis to broader issues involving the creation and protection of assets and the nature of modern government. To a greater degree than most people imagine, the prosperity of government, like that of unions, was directly correlated to the leverage available for extortion. That leverage was much lower in the 19th century than in the 20th. In the next millennium, it will fall almost to the vanishing point. The whole logic of government and the character of power have been transformed by microprocessing. This may seem exaggerated when you first think about it, but look closely. The prosperity of governments has gone hand in hand with the prosperity of labor unions in the 20th century. Before this century, most governments commandeered far fewer resources than the militant welfare states to which we have become accustomed. Likewise, unions were small or insignificant factors in economic life prior to this century. The ability of workers to coerce their employers into paying above-market wages depended upon the same megapolitical conditions that allowed governments to extract 40% or more of the economy's output in taxes. Workplace Extortion Before the 20th Century the rise and fall of union extortion of the capitalists can be readily explained by the changing megapolitics of the production process. In 1776, when Adam Smith published The Wealth of Nations, conditions for extortion in the workplace were sufficiently unfavorable that combinations by workmen to raise the price of their labor were seldom tenable. Most manufacturing firms were tiny and family-run, Larger-scale industrial activities were just beginning to emerge. This did not rule out opportunities for violence, but it gave them little leverage. Indeed, during Smith's time and well into the 19th century, unions were generally considered illegal combinations in the Great Britain, the United States, and other common-law countries. Adam Smith described attempted strikes in these terms. Their usual pretenses are sometimes the high price of provisions— Sometimes the great profit which their master make by their work, they have always recourse to the loudest clamor and sometimes to the most shocking violence and outrage. Nonetheless, the workmen very seldom derive any advantage of those tumultuous combinations except the punishment or ruin of the ringleaders. Scale economies in industry and firm size grew during the 19th century. Yet most individuals continued to work for themselves as farmers or small proprietors, and union organizing efforts, like those described by Adam Smith, continued to generally end in nothing. The legal and political standing of unions changed only as the scale of enterprise rose. The first unions that succeeded in organizing were craft unions of highly skilled workers who normally organized without extensive violence. They tended to settle for wage increases that matched the marginal costs of replacing them. Unions for unskilled workers were another story. They tended to exploit the shift to firms of larger scale by singling out for organizing efforts precisely those industries that were especially vulnerable to coercion, either because they operated at a larger scale or the character of the operations exposed their owners to physical sabotage. This pattern was borne out from Newcastle to Argentina. An early example of violent labor movements in the United States was an attack on the Chesapeake and Ohio Canal in 1834. Unlike most early 19th century businesses, the C&O Canal was not a contained and easily protected operation. As originally planned, it was to have stretched 342 miles, with a 3,000-foot rise from the lower Potomac to the upper Ohio. Digging such a ditch was a big job that never quite got completed. 
Nonetheless, a large number of workers were employed trying to do it, some of whom were not long in recognizing that the canal could be easily incapacitated. Indeed, without regular maintenance, it could be sabotaged by muskrats burrowing under the towpath. In operation, the canal's locks and channels could be ruined simply by careless use, floods from heavy rains, or battering by untowed boats. It was a simple matter for strikers to blockade the waterway with sunken boats or other debris. In early 1834, rioting among rival gangs of Irish workers on the CNO led to an attempt to make good this potential and seize the canal. The effort failed, however, leaving five persons dead after President Andrew Jackson sent federal troops from Fort McHenry to disperse the workers. Mines and railroads also offered early targets of choice for union activism in America. Like the CNO Canal, they too were highly vulnerable to sabotage. Mines, for example, could be flooded or blockaded at the entrance. Simply killing the mules that towed the ore cars out of underground mines created a difficult and unpleasant situation for the owners. Likewise, railroad track beds stretched over many miles and could be guarded only with difficulty. It was relatively easy for Union thugs to attack mines and railroads and do substantial economic damage. Such attacks became commonplace during attempts to organize effective unions. These efforts were generally most intense during periods when real wages were rising due to deflation. When owners attempted to adjust nominal wages, this often triggered protests leading to violence. Such incidents were widespread in the Depression that followed the Panic of 1873. In December 1874, open warfare erupted in the anthracite coal fields of eastern Pennsylvania. The unions organized a violent strike force in the guise of a secret society named the Ancient Order of Hibernians. Also known as the Molly Maguires, after an Irish revolutionary, this group was known for terrorizing the coal fields and preventing those miners who wished to work from doing so. Sabotage and destruction of property, outright murder and assassination were all charged against its members. There was also recurring violence among railroad employees. For example, there were serious outbreaks in July 1877 aimed at destroying the property of both the Pennsylvania and Baltimore and Ohio railroads. Workers took over switches, tore up tracks, sealed off car yards, disabled locomotives, sabotaged, then looted trains, and worse. In Pittsburgh, roundhouses of the Pennsylvania Railroad were set ablaze with hundreds of people inside. Dozens were killed. 2,000 rail cars were burned and looted, and the machine shop was destroyed, along with a grain elevator and 125 locomotives. Federal troops intervened to restore order. Although these early strikes were interpreted sympathetically by socialist and union activists, they inspired little public support. Notwithstanding the inherent vulnerability of industries such as mines and railroads, Overall megapolitical conditions were not yet favorable to the exploitation of the capitalists by the workers. The scale of enterprise was too small to facilitate systematic extortion. While there were vulnerable industries, they employed too small a fraction of the population to allow the benefits of the coercion against employers to be broadly shared. Without such support, they were unsustainable because owners could depend upon the government for protection. While unions sometimes attempted, through intimidation, to prevent local officials from enforcing injunctions, these efforts, too, were seldom successful. Even the most violent strikes were usually suppressed within days or weeks by military means. Blackmail Made Easy There is a lesson to be learned for the information age in the fact that union attempts to achieve wages above market-clearing levels were seldom successful when firm size was small. Not even those lines of business that were clearly vulnerable to sabotage, such as canals, railways, streetcars, and mines, were easily brought under control. This is not because the unions shrank from using violence. To the contrary, violence was lavishly employed, sometimes against high-profile individuals. For example, in a case celebrated in the American labor movement as a case of miners' vengeance, Governor Frank Stunenberg of Idaho 
who had opposed an attempt by miners to blockade properties at Coeur d'Alene, was assassinated by a bomb tossed by a contract killer hired by the Union. But even murder and threats of murder were usually insufficient to obtain Union recognition prior to the emergence of large-scale factories and mass production enterprises in the 20th century. To understand why the circumstances of unions underwent such a change in the 20th century, you must look at the characteristics of production technology. Something definitely changed with the rapid rise of blue-collar factory employment in the early decades of the 20th century. This change made businesses at the forefront of the economy especially vulnerable to extortion. In fact, the physical characteristics of industrial technology almost invited workers to employ coercion to shake down the capitalists. Consider. 1. There was a high natural resource content in most industrial products. This tended to anchor production to a limited number of locations, almost in the way that mines must be located where the ore bodies are. Factories placed near transportation centers with convenient access to parts suppliers and raw materials had significant operating advantages. This made it easier for coercive organizations like governments and unions to extract some of those advantages for themselves. 2. Rising economies of scale led to very large enterprises. Early 19th century factories had been relatively small, but as scale economies increased with the assembly line during the 20th century, the size and cost of facilities at the forefront of the production process rose rapidly. This made them easier targets in several ways. For example, significant scale economies tend to go hand-in-hand with long product cycles. Long product cycles make for more stable markets. This, in turn, invites predatory targeting of firms because it implies that there are longer-term benefits to capture. 3. The number of competitors in leading industries fell sharply. It was not uncommon during the industrial period to find only a handful of firms competing for billion-dollar markets. This contributed to making these firms targets for union extortion. It is far simpler to attack five firms than 5,000. The very concentration of industry was itself a factor that facilitated extortion. This advantage was self-reinforcing because the firms coerced into paying monopoly wages were unlikely to face stiff competition from others who were not also burdened by above-market labor costs. Unions could therefore drain a considerable portion of the profits of such firms without exposing them to immediate bankruptcy. Obviously, if employers had routinely gone broke whenever they were forced to pay above-market wages, workers would have gained little by coercing them to do so. 4. The capital requirements for fixed investment rose to match the scale of enterprise. This not only increased the vulnerability of capital and magnified the costs of plant closures, it also made it increasingly unlikely that a modern factory could be owned by a single individual or family, except through inheritance from someone who had launched the business at a smaller scale. In order to fund the massive costs of tooling and operating a large factory, the wealth of hundreds or thousands of people had to be pooled together in capital markets. This tended to make it more difficult for the splintered and almost anonymous owners to defend their property. They had little choice but to rely upon professional managers, who seldom held more than a bare chemical trace of the outstanding shares of the company. Reliance on subordinate managers weakened the resistance of firms to extortion. The managers lacked strong incentives to risk life and limb protecting the property of the firm. Their efforts seldom matched the kind of militancy commonly seen among owners of liquor stores and other small businesses when their property comes under threat. 5. Greater firm size also meant that more of the total workforce was employed in fewer firms than at any time in the past. In some cases, tens of thousands of workers found employment in a single company. In military terms, the owners and managers were starkly outnumbered by persons employed in subordinate positions. Ratios of 30 to 1 or worse were common. This disadvantage rose with firm size because massive numbers of workers assembled together could more easily employ violence in an anonymous way. 
Under such conditions, the workers were unlikely to have had any meaningful contact or relationships with the owners of the factory. The anonymous character of these relationships no doubt made it easier for workers to dismiss the importance of the owner's property rights. 6. Massed employment in a small number of firms was a broad social phenomenon. This further enhanced the megapolitical advantages enjoyed by unions as compared to the 19th century in America, when most people were self-employed or working in small firms. In 1940, 60% of the American workforce had blue-collar jobs. As a consequence, support for the use of extortion to raise wages spread among a large number who imagined they might benefit by it. This was illustrated by a 1938-39 study of the views of 1,700 people in Akron, Ohio, toward corporate property. The survey found that 68% of the CIO rubber workers had very little or no sympathy with the concept of corporate property, while only 1% were found in the classification of strong support of corporate property rights. On the other hand, not a single businessman, even a small proprietor, fell into the same category of strong opposition to corporate property. 94% received ratings in the range of extremely high support for the rights of property. 7. Assembly line technology was inherently sequential. The fact that the whole production process depended upon the movement and assembly of parts in a fixed sequence created additional vulnerabilities to disruption. In fact, the assembly line was like a railroad within factory walls. If the track could be blocked, or the availability of a single part could be cut off, the whole production process was brought to a halt. 8. Assembly line technology standardized work. This reduced the variability of output for persons of different skills working with the same tools. In fact, a crucial objective of factory design was to create a system in which a genius and a moron on successive shifts of the assembly line would produce the same product. What might be called stupid machines were designed to be capable of only one kind of output. This made it unnecessary for even the buyer of a Cadillac to inquire about the identity of the line workers who produced his vehicle. All the products were meant to be alike, whatever the differences in skills and intelligence between the workers who produced them. The fact that unskilled workers on the assembly line could produce the same product as more able individuals contributed to the egalitarian agenda by making it appear that everyone's economic contributions were equal. Entrepreneurial skills and mental effort seemed less important. The magic of modern production appeared to lie in the machines themselves. If they could not actually have been designed by everyone, they nevertheless appeared to be intellectually accessible to almost everyone. This gave more plausibility to the fiction that unskilled labor was being exploited by factory owners who could be cut out of the equation with no loss to anyone but themselves. We learned we can take the plant, as one GM striker put it. We already knew how to run them. If General Motors isn't careful, we'll put two and two together. These characteristics of industrial technology led uniformly to the creation of labor unions to exploit the vulnerability to shakedowns and to larger governments that fattened on the high taxes that could be imposed upon large-scale industrial facilities. This did not happen once or twice. It happened everywhere large-scale industry took root. Time after time, unions emerged to employ violence to achieve wages considerably above market levels. They were able to do this because industrial factories tended to be expensive, conspicuous, immobile, and costly. They could scarcely be hidden. They could not be moved. Every moment they were out of service meant that their staggering costs were not being amortized. All this made them sitting ducks for coercive shakedowns, a fact that is far more obvious in the history of labor unions than the prevailing ideology of the 20th century would have you believe. The noted economist Henry Simons framed the issue in 1944. Labor organization without large powers of coercion and intimidation is an unreal abstraction. Unions now have such powers. They always have had and always will have, so long as they persist in the present form.
Where the power is small or insecurely possessed, it must be exercised overtly and extensively, large and unchallenged. It becomes like the power of government, confidently held, respectfully regarded, and rarely displayed conspicuously. As precise as Simon's analysis is, however, he was wrong about a crucial point. He presumed that unions always will have what he described as large powers of coercion and intimidation. In fact, unions are fading away, not merely in the United States and Great Britain, but in other mature industrial societies. The reason they are fading, what Simons missed, and what even many union organizers fail to understand, is that the shift to an information society has altered megapolitical conditions in crucial ways that sharply increase the security of property. Microtechnology has already begun to prove subversive of the extortion that supports the welfare state because even in the commercial realm, it creates very different incentives from those of the industrial period. 1. Information technology has negligible natural resource content. It confers few, if any, inherent advantages of location. Most information technology is highly portable, because it can function independent of place, information technology increases the mobility of ideas, persons, and capital. General Motors could not pack up its three assembly lines in Flint, Michigan, and fly away. A software company can. The owners can download their algorithms into portable computers and take the next plane out. Such firms also have an added inducement to escape high taxes or union demands for monopoly wages. Smaller firms tend to have more competitors. If you have dozens or even hundreds of competitors tempting your customers, you cannot afford to pay politicians or your employees much more than they are actually worth. If you alone tried to do so, your costs would be higher than your competitors, and you would go broke. The absence of significant operating advantages in a given locale means that coercive organizations— like governments and unions, will inevitably have less leverage to exploit in trying to extract some of those advantages for themselves. 2. Information technology lowers the scale of enterprise. This makes for smaller firm size, which implies a larger number of competitors. Increased competition reduces the potential for extortion by raising the number of targets that must be physically controlled in order to raise wages or tax rates above competitive levels. The sharp fall in the average size of firms facilitated by information technology has already reduced the number of persons employed in subordinate positions. In the United States, for example, widely reported estimates suggest that as many as 30 million persons worked alone in their own firms in 1996. Obviously, these 30 million are unlikely to go on strike against themselves. It is only slightly less plausible that the additional millions who work in small firms with a handful of employees would attempt to coerce their employers into paying above-market wages. In the information age, workers who wish to raise their wages through extortion will lack the military advantage of overwhelming numbers that made them more formidable within the factory. The fewer persons employed in any firm the fewer the opportunities for anonymous violence. For this reason alone, 10,000 workers divided among 500 firms would pose a lesser threat to the property of those firms than 10,000 workers in a single firm, even if the ratio of workers to owners-slash-managers were exactly the same. 3. Falling scale in enterprise also implies that efforts to secure above-market wages are less likely to command broad social support, as they did in the industrial period. Unions seeking to shake down employers are much more likely to find themselves in the situation of the canal workers, railroad employees, and miners of the 19th century. Even where a few firms with large-scale economies remain as holdovers from the industrial age, they will do so in a context of widely dispersed employment in small firms. The preponderance of small firms and small holders suggests greater social support for property rights, even if the desire to redistribute income remains unaltered. 4. Information technology lowers capital costs which also tends to increase competition by facilitating entrepreneurship and allowing more people to work independently. Lower capital requirements not only reduce barriers to entry, they also reduce barriers to exit. 
In other words, they imply that firms are likely to have fewer assets relative to income, and therefore less ability to sustain losses. Not only will they tend to have less recourse to banks for borrowing, firms in the information age are also likely to have fewer physical assets to capture. 5. Information technology shortens the product cycle. This makes for more rapid product obsolescence. This, too, tends to make any gains that might be achieved by extorting above-market wages short-lived. In highly competitive markets, wages that are too high may lead directly to a rapid loss of jobs and even bankruptcy for the firm. Grasping for temporarily higher wages at the expense of placing your job in jeopardy is like burning your furniture to make the house a few degrees warmer. 6. Information technology is not sequential, but simultaneous and dispersed. Unlike the assembly line, information technology can accommodate multiple processes at the same time. It disperses activities on networks, allowing for redundancy and substitution between workstations that could number in the thousands or even the millions and be anywhere on Earth. In increasing numbers of activities, it is possible for people to cooperate without ever coming into physical contact with one another. As virtual reality and video conferencing become more advanced, the trend toward dispersal of functions and telecommuting will accelerate. This is the information age equivalent of putting out, which broke the power of the medieval guilds. The fact that fewer and fewer people will be working together in smoky factories not only takes away an important advantage that workers formerly enjoyed in engineering shakedowns of capitalists, it also makes it increasingly difficult even to distinguish from racketeering the type of extortion that has been acceptable in the workplace. Heretofore, only persons who have worked together and been employed by a firm in a common setting have been permitted to use violence in the attempt to raise their incomes. But if the workplace does not exist as a central location, and most of the functions are dispersed to subcontractors and telecommuters, there is very little to distinguish from a shakedown racket their efforts to extort money from their clients or employers. For example, is a telecommuter who demands extra cash under threat of infecting the company's computers with a virus a worker on strike or an internet racketeer? Whether he is one or the other will prove to be a distinction without a difference. The reaction of the targeted firms is likely to be much the same in any event. Technical solutions to information sabotage, like improved encryption and network security, that would answer the danger of an outside hacker, should also render moot the capacity of the disgruntled employee or subcontractor to impose damage on parties with whom he regularly or sporadically deals. Of course, it might be suggested that the worker or telecommuter could always report to the office and carry on a more traditional strike there, but even this may not be as simple as it would seem in the information age. The capacity of information technology to transcend locality and disperse economic functions means that for the first time, employees and employers need not even reside in the same jurisdictions. Here, we are not talking about the difference between being in the boroughs of Mayfair and Peckham, but of employers in Bermuda and telecommuters in New Delhi. Furthermore, if the Indians become infatuated by accounts of the great GM strikes of 1936-37 to and determined to journey to Bermuda to picket, they might find no physical office at all when they arrived. Shyatt Day, a large advertising company, has already set about dismantling its headquarters. Its employees or subcontractors stay in touch through call forwarding and the Internet. When it becomes necessary to assemble talent teams to coordinate work on account projects, they rent hotel meeting rooms. When the project is over, they check out. The fact that microprocessing helps to liberate and disperse the production process from the fixed sequence of the assembly line greatly reduces the leverage formerly enjoyed by coercive institutions like unions and governments. If the assembly line were like a railroad within factory walls that could easily be captured by a sit-down strike, cyberspace is an unbounded realm without physical existence. It cannot be occupied by force or held to ransom. 
The position of employees wishing to use violence as leverage to extract higher incomes will be far weaker in the information age than it was for the sit-down strikers at General Motors in 1936-37. 7. Microprocessing individualizes work. Industrial technology standardized work. Anyone using the same tools would produce the same output. Microtechnology has started replacing stupid machines with more intelligent technology capable of highly variable output. The increased variability of output for persons using the same tools has profound implications, many of which we explore in coming chapters. Among the more important is the fact that where output varies, incomes vary as well. Most of the value in fields where skill varies will tend to be created by a small number of persons. This is a common characteristic of the most highly competitive markets. It is quite evident, for example, in sports. Many millions of young people worldwide play various versions of football, but 99% of the money that is spent to watch football games is paid to see the performances of a tiny fraction of the total number of players. Likewise, the world is full of aspiring actors and actresses, yet only a relatively small number become stars. Equally, tens of thousands of books are published annually, but most of the royalty money is paid to a small number of best-selling authors who can really entertain their readers. Unhappily, we are not among them. The vast variability of output among persons employing the same equipment poses yet another obstacle to extortion. It creates a major bargaining problem about how to share the payoff. Where a relatively small proportion of those participating in a given activity create most of the value, it is all but mathematically impossible for them to be left better off by a coerced outcome that averages incomes. One software programmer may devise an algorithm for controlling a robot that proves to be worth millions. Another, working with identical equipment, may write a program worth nothing. The more productive programmer is no more likely to wish to have his income tied to that of his compatriot than Tom Clancy is to agree to average his book royalties with ours. Even the early stages of the information revolution have made it far more obvious than it was in 1975 that skills and mental ability are crucial variables in economic output. This has already vaporized the once-proud rationalization for extortion of the capitalists by the workers that prevailed during the industrial period. The fantasy that unskilled labor actually created the value that seemed to be pocketed in a disproportionate share by the capitalists and entrepreneurs is already an anachronism. It is not even a plausible fiction in the case of information technology. When the programmer sits down to write code, there is too direct a line of attribution between his skill and his product to allow for much mistake about who is responsible. It is obvious, beyond dispute, that an illiterate or semi-literate could not program a computer. It is therefore equally obvious that any value in programs compiled by others could not have been stolen from him. This is why cries of exploitation by workers are now heard mainly among janitors. Information technology is making it plain that the problem faced by persons of low skill is not that their productive capacities are being unfairly taken advantage of, but rather the fear that they may lack the ability to make a real economic contribution. As Kevin Kelly suggests in Out of Control, the upstart car company of the information age may be the brainchild of a dozen people who will outsource most of their parts and still produce cars more carefully customized and tailored to their buyer's wishes than anything yet seen from Detroit or Tokyo. Cars, each one customer-tailored, are ordered by a network of customers and shipped the minute they are done. Molds for the car's body are rapidly shaped by computer-guided lasers and fed designs generated by customer response and target marketing. A flexible line of robots assembles the cars, Robot repair and improvement is outsourced to a robot company. Tools with a voice To an increasing extent, unskilled work can be done by automated machines, robots, and computational systems like digital assistants. When Aristotle described slaves as tools with a voice, he was talking about human beings. In the not-distant future, 
tools with a voice, like the genies of fable, will be able to speak and follow instructions, and even handle complex assignments. Rapidly increasing computational power has already brought forth a number of primitive applications of voice recognition, such as hands-free telephones and computers that perform mathematical computations following verbal instructions. Computers that convert speech to text were already being marketed in late 1996, as we write. As pattern recognition capabilities improve, computers linked to voice synthesizers will operate through networks to perform numerous functions formerly undertaken by humans employed as telephone operators, secretaries, travel agents, administrative assistants, chess champions, claims processors, composers, bond traders, cyber war specialists, weapon analysts, or even street-smart flirts who answer the telephones on 900 calls. Michael Malden of Carnegie Mellon University has programmed a bot, an artificial personality named Julia, who is capable of fooling almost anyone with whom she converses on the Internet. According to press reports, Julia is a wise-cracking dame who lives out her life in a role-playing game on the Internet. She is smart, funny, and loves to flirt. She's also a bit of a hockey whiz and able to come up with the perfect sarcastic comment on a moment's notice. Julia, however, is no lady. She is a bot, an artificial intelligence that exists only in the ether of the Internet. The startling progress that has already been made in programming artificial intelligence and digital servants leaves little doubt that many practical applications are still to come. This has significant megapolitical consequences.